This conversation you're about to hear was recorded before the start of the war against Hamas. Please take that into consideration in our tone of conversation. My guest, Rabbi Alan Haber, added remarks that you will hear at the episode's end regarding the relevancy of these ideas to our current political reality. Some might find it hard to hear his universalist message during a time when we are feeling so much of our own national pain. He tries to address this as well in this addendum. Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's one-on-one Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. This week's episode has been sponsored by a member of our listening community. We deeply appreciate your generosity. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email me at podcast.matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content and are a meaningful way to mark both mournful and joyful occasions. Be in touch and together we can come up with a way to meaningfully mark your occasion. Parshat Lech Lecha chronicles the first portion of the Avraham narratives. It opens with the monumental command that Avraham leave for Canaan, and then it continues with his jarring descent to Egypt in the wake of famine, where he presents Sarai as his sister, lest she be taken by the Egyptians. Avram decides to separate from his nephew Lot, and it is in the wake of this parting of ways that Avram has promised the land of Israel for his descendants. This, I would add, is also the beginning of, of the choosing, right? Avram has chosen, Lot eventually is not part of that vision. And this is followed by the narratives of the war between the four and five kings and Avram's first real foray into local politics. Avram then partakes in the covenant of the pieces of Brit Ben Aptarim, and God reveals the nation's future role as slaves while simultaneously promising him and the nation that they will inherit the land of Israel. More on this on today's episode. This promise seems puzzling at this point in Breshit, but for those who know the story's continuation, understand and how this promise ultimately plays out in history. The rest of the Parsha, in one way or another, dances around the promise of progeny. Initially, this promise seems threatened, both because Avram and Sarai have no children and because he birthed a child through Hagar, who Sarai does not want around her home. Hagar is sent away, and Ishmael is born outside their home and promises own unique destiny, albeit not the one that God seems to be promising Avram. After this, God changes the names of both Avram and Sarai and promises him that despite their old age, they too will have a son. And the Parsha ends with Avram's Brit Mila at the age of 99. Today, my partner in conversation is Rabbi Alan Haber, a longtime educator, currently a Ram at B'nai Kiva's Midrasha Torah Avodah, TVA, and a licensed tour guide. You can read more about him and his work on his website, rabbihaber.net. And he was a guest for episode 56, Parshat Behar, a year and a half ago. Today we'll be discussing a topic he has spent an extensive amount of time trying to bring to the general audience. He has a video series on it titled Am Levadad, which can be found on his website. We will put a link, of course, in the show notes. Rabbi Haber, it's great to be sitting here with you again. It's great to be here again. And also to speak with you about a topic that I know is very close to your heart, something that you've been thinking about for how many years? 
Over 20. Over 20. Okay, so really, really a long time. I really want to get right into how all of these ideas that you've been thinking and writing about and speaking about, how they relate directly to this week's Parsha. We often look at the first verse of this week's Parsha, and we look at this as sort of the inspiration of the first successful Aliyah. Perhaps Terach was the one who began, but Avram is the one who succeeds. And we focus a lot on that, on that verse itself. And of course, we focus on the irony of the fact that God tells Avram to go to Eretz Yisrael, and then very quickly after he ends up leaving. So maybe we'll maybe we'll touch upon that after. Mm-hmm. But a lot of your work really. Uh, really underscores the psukim that come right after that. So why don't we start our conversation there? Okay, sure. The next pasuk immediately tells us the purpose for why Avraham was was chosen and why he was sent on this on this journey uh, to this unknown destination. Right? He was told El Aretz Asher Areka, and he was told that the reason is Ve'Escha Legoi Gadol. And if you look at that pasuk, it's the beginning of what I think is a paradigm shift for many people. Uh, a lot of observant Jews look at themselves as a person who observes a religion. My religion is Orthodox Judaism or something to that effect. Uh, but this pasuk is the beginning of an understanding which shows us that that's, that's really not what the Torah was saying. It's also history shows us, not what actually happened. We're not a religion. What we are is a nation, um, goy gadol, um, but by far not an ordinary nation at all. I use for that the expression am levadad, and I see the origins of that in this Pasuk also. Hashem tells Avraham, We're not talking about a nation that develops organically, sort of naturally as other nations did, but a nation that was almost artificially created for a purpose. And that purpose is also told to us. The Pasuk tells us, after telling us, I will bless you, the Pasuk also commands Avraham, and that expression, you shall be a blessing, is a, a very strange expression. It's not immediately clear what it means to be a blessing. But as I develop in my video series, the next pasuk explains to us what that means. And the next pasuk tells us something which, although many, many people are familiar with it, a lot of people are shocked when they consider the implications. It says, That Avraham was chosen, and sent on this journey in order that he could be made into a nation who will bring blessings to the entire world, all the families of the earth. Which means that we have here a sort of paradox. On the one hand, we talk often about the chosen people, and we talk often about the insular nature of Am Yisrael, the nation that came from Avraham. But here we're told that actually the purpose of the whole thing is for the entire world, that we were chosen, and we have this unique status, but the purpose for which we were chosen is not for us. The purpose for which we were chosen, we being Avram's descendants, is to bring God's blessings to the entire world. And when you really internalize what that means, I think it leads to a paradigm shift. Okay, so maybe I'll take a step back for a moment because I sort of introduced this series by speaking about the fact that the first 11 chapters of Savior Breshit are really universal and there's really nothing there other than when we mash at the end of the 11th chapter when we sort of zoom in on Avram's family 
and the sense we get that they're building up to something that's more particular. So first of all, you're saying chapter 12 is more of a continuation than the first 11 than I might have presented it, that the that there is something that is still universal that is being presented here. And it's not really about this particular family. It's how this particular family is going to impact the broader the broader world. Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. Okay. One of the things that got me thinking about this decades ago was when one of my teachers, Rabbi Menachem Liebtag, pointed out that the narrative that immediately precedes uh, the, the, the story of Avraham is the narrative of Migdal Bavel. Uh, however one understands that narrative, it describes the division of humanity into, into many nations. And immediately after that, we have the ten generations from Noach to Avraham. And uh, so that the particular nation is chosen from among the nations in order to be a leader to bring God's blessings to all of those nations. So yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. We are zooming in from the universal to the particular, but not to negate the universal. To the contrary, the particular is highlighted in order to ultimately enlighten and redeem, right? bring redemption. So, okay, so then there's another term that I want to try and figure out how your paradigm impacts it. What does it mean to bring blessing to the other nations? Now, I'll, I'll preempt my question with, with an idea. I believe it's in a book in Chosenness. I'll probably end up quoting this a bunch of times throughout this series because our topic is Chosenness and, and those that are chosen. But uh, I think it's in a book about the sort of the theology of the chosen people by Yehuda Gelman, uh, who's a researcher in Ben Gurion University. And one of, I, I believe the paradigm he brings as his own, I think, by the way, Rabbi Sachs ex- echoes it in some of what he writes, but I read it in, in this work, is that what is our role as the chosen people? It's not a better than, it's not any of those sort of more superior looking at attitudes, but it's to sort of be a little bit how we look at the Kohanim, that they sort of channel God's blessing to the people. They have I wouldn't a, say a little bit. A lot. We're told later on, the active phase of this happens later on in Shemot, when Avram's descendants have already become that nation, when they stand at Har Sinai, and what are they told? Vatem tiyuli mamlechet kohanim. We are supposed to be kohanim. That's exactly the, uh, the, the model that the Torah uses to describe the role of Am Yisrael in the world, and I see that as the direct continuation of this. And that means what? It mean, what does it mean to bring God's bring God's blessing to the people, what, what it, to the, the world. What does that mean to you? So it's fascinating that the Torah doesn't immediately spell out what it means here. Um, but it seems that Avraham understood it because we're told uh, a few psukim later that when he comes to Canaan, we're told that Vayavor Avram ba'aretz ad mekom shechem ad And then we're told Vayera Hashem el Avram vayomer lezarecha etenet ha'aretz hazot. And that's when Avram understands that, okay, he's, he was told, he's going to some unknown destination. And when he gets here, he understands that this is the place. And immediately his response is, he builds, he builds a mezbech to God. And a, a bit later, when he goes deeper into the land, and he, he finds himself in the area between Beit El and Ai, we're told, and I understand that to mean that Avram began to teach. He began to spread the message of monotheism. Um, we find that also later on uh, in Be'er Sheva, he builds this, his Eshel, and they're also Vayikra B'Shem Hashem. So um, it seems to me, um, and I develop all this in, in the video series, that the messages of monotheism is the blessing that Avram was chosen to bring to the world. And we find uh, him presented that way, particularly by Chazal, even more than by the Torah itself, as the one who brings, and he's also understood in history, as the one who brings the message of monotheism to the world. 
So I, I have a question because that, that Pasuk really throws me back to the fourth chapter in Breshit. Uh, in the fourth chapter in Breshit, the last Pasuk, Pasuk Hafvav 26, says, Uleshet gam hu yulad ben, vaikrat shmo enosh, vaaz huchal likro b'shem Hashem. Right, that Shet, which is also ultimately our line, that he also has a son. This is sort of in contrast to Cain's line, which sort of ends uh, and doesn't, doesn't go anywhere for all the obvious reasons. And he has a son named Enosh, and he begins to call out the name of God. Now, there are different readings of that verse, but the plain sense of the verse is similar to how you're reading here, Avraham's, I believe even Ezra also brings it, which is that he's starting to worship God, meaning mm-hmm. even before Avraham, which goes a little bit against sort of like the classic Midrashic reading, but even before Avraham, there was somebody out there in the world who was trying to bring this kind of worship of God. I also think, of course, while this is a retrospective, the fact that his name is Enosh, which becomes Enoshut, right? It's the mm-hmm. name of humanity. I Meaning humanity ultimately is supposed to be a people who call the name of God. So that that's a similar idea. You would also For read sure. that here. And not only that, not only do we have shit, but in our parsha as well, we have Malkit Tzedek Melech Shalem, who's also a Kohen Le'el Elyon, uh, which certainly seems to indicate that he's some sort of a monotheist. Avraham gives him Maaser. Avraham respects him. Uh, the Ramban does suggest, and some modern... Uh, some modern historical research might support this as well, that perhaps Malkitzedek was not a pure monotheist in the same sense as Avraham is. Um, Ramban points out that the Torah describes Malkitzedek as Kohen le'el elyon, but Avraham, when he responds to Malkitzedek, he says, Baruch Hashem el elyon. He mentions the, uh, you know, the More the particular name of God. understanding of God. But, and there's, of course, a midrash that associates, a Rashi quotes, that associates Malkitzedek with Shem ben Noach, whether you accept that or not. So yes, we're not saying here that Avraham initiated the idea of monotheism. Uh, to the contrary, this is an idea that, as you correctly point out, is definitely there already, a knowledge that existed in the world, even if even if uh, the Rambam also in his uh, Hilchot Avodah Zarah suggests that at one point all humanity were monotheists and there was sort of a, a kind of a deterioration uh, that Avraham came to sort of reverse. But either way, I think that, it, that underscores what we've been saying here, that uh, Avraham is not a, a pioneer in the sense of coming up with something new, but Avraham's chosen for a mission to bring this message to the world. And I think history showed that Avraham's descendants and the message that he brought to the world absolutely has accomplished that and is in the process of accomplishing that anyway. So I guess I'm curious how you, so you're saying ultimately we look at Avraham as sort of successfully bringing this idea into the world. I guess I look at the paragraph that comes right after, and I hinted to this before, which is that God sends Avram to Eretz Yisrael, and he gets there, and he sees that the conditions are less than ideal, right? There's a there's a famine, and he ends up leaving. And the commentators debate whether that was a good move or a bad move, whether it was a precursor for Yitzhak Mitzrayim, right? The Ramban quoting the Gemara Nadarim, etc. What about the fact that when he gets to Canaan, the conditions for living there are also not ideal, meaning he's not the first guy that's there, right? right. What, what do you have to say about that? Uh, that's, there's a paradox built into the system which becomes a paradox in Jewish history. Maybe the best way to present this before reading the Pasuk is to look back from our own experience today. Here we are thousands of years after Abraham. And if you look at the contemporary reality, right, what's, what we're dealing with here in the land of Israel, what's often called the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and without taking a position on what should be done about it, if we ask ourselves, how did we get into this situation? So if you go look back at, at the early uh, history of what came before the state of Israel, whether you're talking about 
what's called the first and second Aliyot, you know, in the late 19th century, where Jews came here running away from pogroms in Russia. Whether you're talking about Herzl, who came up with the idea that the only way to end anti-Semitism is to, is to stop trying to live as a nation among the nations. Whether you're talking about those who came here running away from the Nazis, either before the Holocaust or, or the refugees afterwards. Whether you're talking about Jews who came here from Arab countries. All of them came here for two reasons. With a sense that this is our ancient homeland that we've been praying for and dreaming about for centuries. And with the sense that we can't really be stable, have a stable existence anywhere in the exile. And we have to come back home in order to be able to just live a normal life. And we get here, and there's already other people here who, uh, who feel that this land is theirs and who view us as invaders. That's not a new situation. The same exact thing happened, if we go back in history, in the days of Shivat Zion, when the Jews came back from, from the Babylonian exile and they found other people here. This is discussed in detail in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah with some very striking parallels to modern Zionist history. If you go back before that to Yitziat Mitzrayim, you have the same situation. We have a nation, and maybe we'll talk about this a little bit uh, a little bit later on in this discussion, but a nation that became a nation in exile. They're born as a nation in exile, knowing, and they're enslaved, so that they can't really exist there, and they know that, they ha- that they're not in their land, they have a homeland, and then when they get there, they have to fight wars against the local people who view them as invaders. And that bizarre situation that repeats itself throughout history is hardwired into the situation as we see here in this pasuk. Avram gets to Eretz Canaan, and the Torah specifically tells us, back in Pasuk Vav, in our parsha, Vayavora Avram ba'aretz, ad mekom shechem, ad elon moreh, v'haknani az ba'aretz. Avram gets to the land, and it's a land that's already inhabited. And I almost, I, I've often wondered if Avraham, uh, you alluded to the fact that Terach had already started this journey, and there's a discussion of whether Avraham knew where he was going or not. But a simple reading of the text says, El ha'aretz asher areka. I've often sort of envisioned Avraham getting there, looking around, saying, well, clearly this is not the place where I'm going to become a nation because this land is already inhabited. Hakna'ani az And Hashem says, no, 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 this is the place. There's something hardwired into the system that we're created as a nation that, can exi- that has a homeland, but is able to exist in exile, not, not easily, and not, not with any sense of stability, but at the same time, a nation that has existed for thousands of years of exile and dispersion and persecution, somehow always manages to exist and has a homeland that there are always other people there that they have to fight and struggle to get to that homeland, where on the one hand, they can only really fulfill their destiny in that homeland, and on the other hand, it's possible for them to exist without that homeland, which makes them what I call Amlevadad, a nation like all other nations. I think all that is built into the system from day one, and it's right here in these psukim. Okay, I want to get to the why question, but before I, we jump into the why, I also just want to, uh, there, I thought there was a very interesting comment that, uh, that Shadal makes on this pasuk. And, you know, when you're looking at it through your reading, you're saying, well, there was already the Kanani there. Also say, as a, as a side statement, that this is a very complicated pasuk. This, and this pasuk hinges a tremendous amount of discussion about who who's the perspective of the Torah, who's who's it being written from, right? Is the Kanani that was there when, when Avraham gets there? Is it speaking about the time of the Torah? This is like one of those psukim, by the way, on which hinges a tremendous amount of like, of more critical biblical uh, 
ideas. But the Shadal, but Shadal says in this pasuk, why does it tell you that the Knani were there, right? And he doesn't get to your your broader Jewish history idea, but he says, that the Torah wants us to know that the Kenani was already there when we were promised the land, but not another nation. So our job is only to take it from the Kenani, right? He says it's, we're not taking the land from somebody else or some other very wicked nation. It's just from the Kenani who God commanded us to take it from. So like he was concerned that there's going to be a whole sort of chain of other nations. He said, no, no, it's just the Kenani who are there. And he sort of looks at it as like, you know, that, that that's that's all we have to take it from, and like we know we know who the enemy was, we know what their problem is, we know like sort of their moral faults, and th- that's the only group of people that we had to uh, inherit or essentially conquer Israel from. Uh, the question, of course, but as was, you point out, it's it's not only that; it's also that as soon as he gets there, he has to leave. And Correct. He, he immediately finds out that holding on to this land is not going to be simple. Yeah, the conditions there are, right. are are not simple. But again, the question is why? Is this you know? I'm, I, immediately, I'm going to sort of like a why do we have to begin our life in Galut? Well, maybe it's perhaps to sort of like purify that core group of people who are going to come. This you know, core chituch, or or we have to sort of as the Torah says many times, you have to start yourself in exile so that you understand what it means to be a stranger in your own land because that sort of sense of being being dispossessed is like at the root of being kind people is that we're going with this kind of theology meaning why why do we have to start with that struggle why can't the first time we get the land it's ours and it's simple and then we lose it so that we but we know first what it's like to have that and then lose it meaning why immediately start off without it being something that we can actually so i thought a lot about this and i i actually think there's a paradox here that the torah is emphasizing on purpose on the one hand the messages that that i that i see in all of this are indisputably religious zionist messages uh, as I say that we, we have to view ourselves as a nation and not as a religion, uh, a lot of what comes out of that is that to really be a nation, we have to be in our own land. And by the way, we mentioned earlier the concept of Kohanim, uh, and the Torah does call us Kohanim, but the Torah doesn't call us, the Torah doesn't just say, Vatem Tiuli Kohanim. It says, Vatem Tiuli Mamlechet Kohanim. Words, the goal is to be a kingdom, to be a Goy Kadosh, it says in the same Pasuk. And to do that, you really have to have your own land. And yet, at the same time, the thing that more than anything else differentiates us from all other nations, what I mean when I use the phrase Am Levadad, is the fact that although we need to be in our homeland in order to fulfill our destiny, we can exist without it. We're not dependent on our homeland to exist. You know, in uh, Israel's uh, Declaration of Independence, which is you know being discussed a lot in the news today, or actually it's being mentioned, but most people are not discussing what it actually says, um, there was a lot of debate about what it, how to phrase it. And... Uh, and one of the phrases that uh, that some of the religious groups objected to that was ultimately put in anyway is it begins with the expression, Be'eretz Yisrael kam ha'am ha'yehudi. And uh, the religious groups at least said that's not true. Uh, the Torah doesn't say that. The nation of Israel was actually born in exile and received the Torah at Sinai and only then came into the land of Israel. And I think, I think that's what the, the message that the Torah is saying here. On the one hand, this land is crucial to you. But no, it's not your natural land that you're, that you're taken away from. You have to earn it. You have to deserve it. And if you don't, you're going to be thrown out of it repeatedly. And yet you're going to be able to exist without it. And yet at the same time, you can't really exist without it. And that paradox, I think, is hardwired in. Because it's through that that we've been able to fulfill our, our, our destiny. 
And so in that sense, do you think that when Abraham gets there, he's also the first person to not really deserve it? Meaning if I go through that, meaning what, again, I get it's built. So maybe it's just building a paradigm for the future. I wouldn't say that because the Haknani Az Ba'aretz tells us that this was not a reaction to something that Abraham did wrong. By the way, also in our Parsha, we're going to have the Brit Ben Abitarim. And um, although there is discussion about exactly what that had to be, and there are some of the Mifarshim that view the, the, you know, the enslavement in Egypt particularly as, as a punishment for various things that happened, but the basic idea that, you're gonna, that Avram's descendants are going to be in exile for hundreds of years, that can't possibly be a punishment for anything anyone did wrong because it's hardwired in from the beginning. That's what Avram is told. And he's told that before he has a, before his son Yitzhak is born. Mm-hmm. So the exile is built into the system as something that had to happen. At least this exile, maybe not the future exiles, but perhaps this exile had to happen in order that this nation will be able to exist in exile. It has to be born in exile in order that it will have to... So it's not that it doesn't deserve the land, but it has to deserve the land. It has to make itself worthy of the land. And if it's not worthy of the land, it's going to be sent back into exile, and it's going to be able to exist there for the very reason that it's, it, it, that it's not true that Be'eretz Yisrael kam ha'am ha'yudi, but rather that the, the nation was born in a way that it can exist in exile, and Eretz Yisrael is the goal, but it's not the, the basis. It makes me think a little bit about a, like a wealthy family who purposefully tells their children that they have to go find a job. Uh, meeting where in one hand like they could provide for them easily but as a family they know that their values of being hardworking people of being people who were able to amass that wealth is something that they only were able to do because they had a value of hard work of not assuming that things are just going to come to you so it makes them them great parents but i'm saying it kind of feels like sort of this I don't know, massive educational program. And and I want to get back in a minute to what we're supposed to teach the world. But the first sense we have is that is that first we had to te- God had to teach us, right? He had to teach us that your homeland is not going to be easy to come by, that you know, you're going to have to work for this. Even though it's a God-given gift, it doesn't mean that it's going to come easily to you. Hey, welcome Asher Love to the podcast. <laughs> I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> if anyone's been hearing his thumping until now, we're happy you came. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say about that. And I also would like to to understand, we mentioned that, you know, we're here to teach the world about monotheism. I'm curious if there's any way you can sort of like expound upon that. But. So again, what are the two questions? Well, the first question I have is about is looking at this as an educational program. Do you agree with that that kind of prism in this case? Yeah, I do. I do. I think uh, all of Sefer Bereshit uh, is kind of... Uh, uh, a process of development and and included in that is educational development. We don't have a nation until Sefer Shmot. Sefer Bereshit is, is unquestionably the story of individuals and of a family. Um, my message is that a lot of times people, correctly so, study Sefer Bereshit. I believe that's what you did in this podcast last year, and you focused on the messages that come out for families and for individuals, and that's absolutely correct. At the same time, the Torah is presenting all of this in the context of the family that is laying the foundation for a nation. And uh, here Avram is told, in the future you're going to be a nation. But Avram's not a nation, and neither is his descendants. We're told Yaakov Avinu, near the end of Bereshit, on his way down to Egypt, he stops in Beersheva. 
And there he's told, Al ki legoi gadol asimcha sham. There you will become a nation. And in fact, Sefer Shemot begins, Ve'ele Shemot b'nei Yisrael habayim Mitzrayma. Seventy people go down to Mitzrayim, a large family, maybe even a clan, but not a nation. And it's in Mitzrayim that they become a nation, exactly as Hashem told, told Avraham. So, so all of Sefer Breshit is really the prelude, is really the foundation for this. And in part of that is for sure a process, it's a process of, of, uh, of chosenness and selection, which I imagine we'll be discussing in, in the later partial. Right when there are those already, we have the beginning of that in this week's parsha, where Lot, who potentially maybe could have been part of this, is sort of sent away, and then of course Yishmael, and then of course Esav, and and uh, and then the process that 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 stops with the uh, with Yaakov's children all being, and, and the possibility that maybe they didn't realize that, and there was a possibility that maybe Yosef was being selected out, yes or no, but ultimately it's Bnei Yisrael Habayim Mitzrayim. So within all of that. There's also, I think, this process of, of preparing them for the mission that's going to, that's going to come up uh, in, in the future. Can, we, it, can you possibly expound a bit more on the nation versus religion? Yeah. Um, and like the relationship between those two? Yeah. And I'll also tell you why I think it's important to make that distinction. So again, if we continue the Torah's narrative, right? So Sefer Shmot uh, tells us about the slavery, uh, all of which had been, and, and ultimately, of course, about Yitziat Mitzrayim, all of which had been to some extent at least, predicted and, and foretold in, in our Parsha in Brit Benavitarim. And then they come to Harsinai. And it, it, it's also clear, Moshe Rabbeinu was told that, that Harsinai was the immediate goal of, uh, of Yitziat Mitzrayim. And when he gets there, he's told to receive the Torah. And in the process of presenting the Torah, he's told, I'm reading from Shemot Perak Yutet here, Pasuk A, Verse 5, So they're told, if you accept the Torah, you will be segula, which at least, yeah, a treasure, but it seems to indicate chosenness. That's also the way the word is used in, in Devarim. And he's told there, So the purpose of the Torah is to turn us into that kingdom, that nation. And the Torah is not a book of religion. Religion is only a part of the Torah. If we look at the, uh, you know, the, six, the six sections of the Talmud, which codify for us the laws in the Torah. So, Seder's Masechet Brachot, Masechet Zvachim, there are definitely uh, mitzvot, uh, Kriyat Shema, and, and, and Korbanot. Obviously, we're, part of what we're, we're meant to represent and part of what we're told to do is how to worship God. But we have entire sections of the Torah that discuss the Torah is a constitution for a nation. It tells us how to run a government. It tells us how to run an army. It tells us how to, how to set up a court system and justice. It gives us a whole body of civil law of how to adjudicate disputes between people, how to punish criminals, everything you need to do to run a society. It talks about the economy. Um, I have one of my videos where I, I give a number of examples of this, and there are more as well. So the, the Torah is meant to be a constitution for a nation. And if we look at it that way, first of all, the... Um, the paradigm shift of saying we're not a religion also means we have to think differently about a lot of terms that we use and a lot of the way we think about those things. For example, um, when I talk about the concept of giur, about a non-Jew joining the Jewish people, I, I try very hard not to use the English translation. It's translated as conversion, and I don't have a better English word, but it's not really, a, a person who's becoming Jewish is not converting to a religion. They're, they're becoming a citizen of the nation. And the religion of the Torah is a universal religion. 
All human beings are obligated to follow the Torah. I know that's uh, very jarring to a lot of people to hear. But we have this concept of Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach, which first of all is not seven laws. It's seven categories with dozens and dozens of laws if you study them, at least according to some opinions. And a lot of times we've, we've been trained to think of that as like a side point. Yeah, those, those non-Jews are, are supposed to follow the, the Sheva Mitzvot B'nai Noach. But if you really understand the psukim that we read here, that's the point. The religion, the idea of accepting the existence of one God and worshiping Him is universal. And we have many more mitzvot, not because that's our religion, because that's what it takes to be the Kohanim. By the way, the Torah sets up for us a model of Kohanim. We have Kohanim among us as well, and they, to some extent, have to live a little bit separately from us. They have different rules. They can't marry some of us, and they have to, they have to live somewhat differently. Uh, I go to a, you and I go to a funeral, that's a mitzvah, but a Kohen is not allowed to go to a funeral, right? They have to, they have to live a little bit differently, in, but not because they're meant to be separate from us. To the contrary, they're meant to be our leaders. And we have that role vis-a-vis the rest of the world. So another mistaken paradigm. Many, many times I've been told, you know, uh, we're, Judaism is different than all other religions because all other religions try to convert people to join their religion and we don't. First of all, it's not true. There are religions that don't allow converts also. But that's not the point. If you understand that the religion of the Torah is monotheism, is Sheva Mitzvot and Noach, we absolutely do proselytize. We absolutely do want the whole world to follow our religion. What we don't push for, we give them the option, but we don't encourage them, is to join our nation they have the ability to join our nation if they want. And that also makes us different than other nations. You, know, you can't really become a member of another nation. You could immigrate, you could marry into, but you can't actually become, I couldn't become you know, French or Russian. I just can't. But I can become a member, or someone can become a member of Am Yisrael. So that's what we don't uh, demand or, or encourage. But we absolutely are trying to spread the ideas of monotheism. Um, and in my video series, I uh, have a video called Two Paths to Redemption. And I developed there the idea that this could have been done and perhaps should have been done from our base in Eretz Yisrael as the Mamlechet Kohanim. But the Torah also provided the, uh, the possibility, and it's spelled out very, very clearly in, in, in frightening detail uh, in, the, in, a, in a number of places, but particularly in the Tochacha at the end of Ayikra and at the Tochacha at the end of Dvarim, where the Torah basically lays out for us uh, all of the patterns of Jewish history. Uh, and it tells us that one way or another, we're going to get these messages out to the world. And when you, if you consider the fact that, even though, as we pointed out earlier, Avram was actually not the only monotheist in the world when he came into the scene, but he was certainly one of the only. Uh, and today, a majority of humanity believes in the God of Avram, and even in the Torah, mainly through Christianity and Islam and, and, and the various uh, smaller religions that have spun off from those, but they all accept on one level or another the idea, first of all, that the God of Avraham is the one true God, and that the Torah was God's revelation. And uh, when you consider the fact that a majority of humanity now accepts that, that's just, to me, that's mind-blowing. And that tells us that, actually, this plan is working, and uh, we're also a lot closer to redemption than we may think. The redemption, the prophets talk about, that's where this all heads. That, uh, that ultimately, Yeshayahu speaks about the whole world, that the whole world is going to understand God, and he talks about them beating swords into plowshares and all of that. 
And that's all, in my view, uh, the end of the story that begins with the cho- choice of Avraham here. And what's historically undeniable is that it's Am Yisrael that has brought that message to the world through the Torah, through our observance of the Torah, and through our violation of the Torah and the exile that we suffered as a result. Okay, so just just to recap until this point, that essentially this program is, A, we've differentiated between between religion and nation, okay? Our role, we're both, right? But but really the program that we have is that we are a nation who is supposed to, we're sort of elevated in a way because we have other mitzvot, just like the Kohanim have additional mitzvot that are, that are beyond our obligations, that it makes us emissaries. Our job is to be an emissary of monotheism. And that, and therefore, in a sense, we don't even have our own religion. And that's just a little part, I would say, or a mm-hmm. part of a, a branch of our our role in the world. Um, and, and sort of in in that same line of thinking, it, I'm curious. Well, of course, this also has um, impact on how we look at redemption. But maybe we'll send people to the website to see what that means a bit more. I guess I'm curious as we sort of wrap up our conversation, how this might impact the way we look at Jews who are, I would say, checking the boxes on all the other elements that we've mentioned, but they're not checking the box on the element of, of observance. Like, where where does that fit then into this this understanding? I'll even just add a sentence to that, which is that the this, this question has become really critical, not only because of the percentage of members of religious families who are also leaving, uh, but because in modern Israel, the other branches of our nationhood are so pronounced and so present that I even think that even if it's not spoken in these words, the need for the religious to preserve our Jewishness has shifted. If that's what saved us and it was our lifeboat in exile in Israel, the relationship sort of shifts uh, with our with our religious observance. And so you can not observe really, but you still have a whole frame of of Jewish life, of holidays, right? Shabbat exists even if you're not the one who's keeping it on a halachic level. So this question, I agree and, with and, you. And, and, and the holidays are just built into They're your, built into the you system. Know, everybody knew it was Rosh Hashanah whether or not they went to shul. It, they didn't go to work. Exactly. Rosh Hashanah. And um, so like it's uh, this question uh, in a massive way relates to to other, you know, Jews who were never involved in religious life. And I think it's also become really critical within the religious world where sort of the fading of members away from religious life, which is its own separate topic for a podcast that's not my own, is also one that I think might be impacted by by how you look at this. Yes, I agree. And uh, what I want to suggest is that this actually provides us with a way forward, meaning there are those in the religious community who see everything you just said um, and see that either as a double-edged sword or, or simply as a threat. I mean, precisely the fact that in Israel you can be Jewish without observing some of the mitzvot of the Torah, without observing Shabbat and Kashrut and putting on tefillin and things like that, causes some of us to feel that, uh, therefore, it, it, paradoxically, they feel that they have to be even more insular here than they, than they do in, 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 in the diaspora because... Uh, in the diaspora, at least, it's clear who's a Jew and who's not, or something like that. But I'm actually saying the opposite here, and I, I want to be very clear. I'm not at all suggesting that, um, I'm not endorsing the idea that a person doesn't have to observe the mitzvot of Shabbat and Kashrut in order to be, uh, uh, you know, in order to be seen as somebody that's, that's upholding the Torah. But what I am saying is that viewing ourselves as a religion is something that happened in, in, in exile, 
um, as a result of the fact that much of the Torah was just not relevant to us, and as a result of the fact that our reality was that we were living in other countries, and that the only thing that, that really separated us were those laws. What I'm saying is that now we have to start looking at the big picture of the Torah again. The Torah commands us to keep Shabbat and Kashrut and all those things, but the Torah also talks about how to run a country and how to run an economy and all the other things that I spoke about. And when you look at it that way, we can simply, if we stop talk, calling ourselves Datiim and Chilonim, I don't know exactly what terms to use. I, uh, I actually haven't thought about that enough. But if we look at those who are called non-religious, instead of looking at them as people who've rejected the Torah, if instead we look at them as people who are emphasizing other aspects of the Torah, uh, who are waving banners of things like uh, human dignity, um, freedom, liberty, equality, and things like that, even if we may disagree with their with, interpretation, with their of, interpretation those, yeah. of those values, and that, that, that debate is legitimate, um, but if we look at them as people who are emphasizing aspects of the Torah that maybe we haven't put enough emphasis on, and we can still come and say, okay, that's a good point you're making, but we think you're misunderstanding that because there are aspects of the Torah that you haven't focused on enough, then maybe we can actually learn something from each other. Instead of uh, looking at it as the truth versus falsehood and those who are, you know, are the, you know, the good versus evil, um, but look at it as uh, a, a debate. Look at them as people who are arguing, whether they say it or not, and some of them do, but who are arguing from within the Torah. And when, and, and when, when liberal groups quote, quote from us from, from the Torah, from Chazal, instead of uh, reacting, you know, who, who do you think you are to quote those sources? You don't understand what they mean. Maybe that's not always true. And again, that doesn't mean we have to ex- agree. It doesn't mean we should accept uh, necessarily all of their applications of those things. Uh, first of all, maybe there are things they're saying that we should accept. And even if we don't, if we look at it as a debate about what the Torah says, as opposed to a debate between those who accept the Torah and those who don't, then I think that opens up a lot of new possibilities, which I really think is the truth. And that might really be a way forward. And therefore also our own children, those from our, from our community who, uh, who, who, who stop being as observant. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, I'm not minimizing the pain that, that we should feel at that. But at the same time, uh, it just looks different when we realize that to, to some extent they may be rebelling. And Ralph Cook said this already. This is yeah. not new. Mm-hmm. Maybe rebelling against... Uh, what they see, maybe correctly, in some ways, as a distortion of the Torah, and maybe there's something deeper going on there, and it ultimately can lead us to something much bigger. Rabbi Haber, thank you for this conversation. And I remind everyone listening that they can hear more about it, see videos uh, with some of these ideas as well, on your website, rabbihaber.net, under the uh, rubric of Am Levadad. Thanks Correct. for being here. Thank you. Here is Rabbi Alan Haber's addendum to the conversation we had had weeks prior. Hi, uh, this is Rabbi Haber again uh, with a short addendum that I'm recording during the week of Parshat Noach. As Yosefa mentioned at the beginning, the podcast that you've just listened to was originally recorded before the horrific events of Simchat Torah and the sudden state of war that we're now finding ourselves in here in Israel, which is why we didn't discuss or relate to that in any way during the discussion. As she also indicated, we decided to put the podcast up anyway, first of all, because Torah is always relevant and hopefully uh, the messages can be heard now and also in the future, and also because at least some of the messages of this podcast are even particularly relevant right now. Certainly the discussion of the difficulty and the, and the needs at times to struggle for Eretz Israel, I think is something that resonates now uh, even more than it did a few weeks ago when we sat calmly discussing those matters. 
At the same time, I did want to just add a few words, putting a little bit of what was said into the current context as well. First of all, a lot of what we spoke about had to do with universal issues, focusing on other nations and on our responsibility to the world at large. And I think it's possible, at least, that some people might find that conversation somewhat jarring right now, at a time when we're all focusing so much on our own pain and on the difficult and quite possibly lengthy struggle that lies ahead, which has been thrust upon us and which requires all of our efforts and resources. That's understandable, and we have the right and even the responsibility to focus on ourselves right now. At the same time, I think and I hope that contemplating a bit about the big picture and about our role in the world and our purpose for existence and, and all the strange things that have happened to us throughout history and this latest uh, crisis being just another example of that, I hope that that can help give us strength right now, even if we may need to put much of the application of those universal ideas on somewhat of a temporary hold. Also, the issue of universal morality may be in our minds right now because of the absolutely inexcusable double standards with which certain elements around the world are unforgivably admonishing us about alleged human rights abuses caused to the residents of Gaza, while in many cases completely ignoring the atrocities committed by our enemies. On the one hand, this inexcusable hypocrisy is infuriating, but on the other hand, it shouldn't obscure the issue. Even now, Precisely because of our mission, the mission that was given to Abraham, we need to consider the morality of war as we go into battle, even if our enemies don't. At the same time, though, we have to make very clear that fighting a just war, which includes killing our enemies mercilessly, and unfortunately also involves the inevitable, although regrettable, so-called collateral damage to uh, an, an unfortunate injury or even death to civilians that goes with that, fighting such a war is the moral thing to do. Not, not an immoral thing. It, it would be immoral to hold back from fighting the war. And that message also comes out from our Parsha, Parshat Lech Lecha. Avraham, we're told, went to war against the four kings uh, to release hostages. Undoubtedly, he killed people in the process. And that's what needs to be done. The Torah does not command us to be pacifists. And finally, I just wanted to say something about the discussion that we had at the very end of the podcast and my comments about unity and about dialogue between different groups in Am Yisrael, including dialogue between uh, the Torah community and the so-called non-observant community. Those comments were made on the background of the protests and the strife that was very, very prevalent in Israel which came to an abrupt halt on Simchat Torah. Right now, Baruch Hashem, we're finding ourselves very much united by the struggle that we're in, and that is one blessed thing that perhaps is coming out of this horrific situation. The discussion, though, is not irrelevant, and even if, thankfully, those protests over the judicial reform and all the other related issues which were raging in Israel, those have faded into the background right now, the day will come, when this is all over and we're going to have to return to those discussions, and we should because the discussions and the debates were important. Uh, everybody's feeling now, I think, and a lot of people have been saying that we have to make sure to preserve the unity that we're currently feeling then, and the comments and the perspectives that I offered at the end of the podcast, I hope, can help in that effort when the time comes. And lastly, I'd just like to conclude with a tefillah for the safety and well-being and swift and thorough success 
of our soldiers, for the safety and swift return of all of the hostages, and for the complete and speedy recovery of all the wounded. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you.